Hello and welcome to this second special bonus edition of the storyteller Murder Most Foul. And this is for you out there who can't wait the seven days in between the main episodes and want a bit more of the story behind the story. So the second episode, she made it to the door. It's a tough one. And you'll know now that it's referring to the fact that Melanie had been trying to fight her attacker and she'd actually managed to try and escape and she'd got just to the door when that fatal blow was inflicted and there was no surviving that as uh, we heard from the forensics and the pathologist. And we will go and delve into that a little later in this episode but first I'd like to look a bit deeper into the police's initial suspicion of the family. You heard more from Melanie's stepfather, Paul Patrick, in this episode, and he was interrogated as a suspect. Now, this wasn't just because the statistics and the crime patterns show that it's often someone close to the victim. This was also because they had gone on holiday on the Saturday and the Saturday afternoon, and that window of where she was murdered was between the Friday night when Susan, her mother, spoke to her on the phone, and Monday evening when her body was found. So they'd gone off to Glasgow in the afternoon and they didn't fly out to Spain until the evening. Now, what complicated things was that Paul, on the Saturday morning, had changed his clothes a number of times, which he'll tell me why in a moment, but also the fact that he was ex-military. He, in fact, was a guard to the Queen at Balmoral Castle. On the Saturday before, right, they left. I changed my clothes three times that morning. Mm -hmm. And I was still in the washing machine. Because I was doing work in one of the hotels on the Friday. Stuff was in the washing machine. Something happened with one of the vans and I was fixing that. The stuff was in the washing machine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I, and then I went away again to do something. So I guess they were seeing that you were away from the home. And so they were speaking to all these people. When I could see my movements, was, oh, yeah. he was wearing that. No, he was wearing that. You've got other stuff. They're still in the washing machine, pal. You know, that clothes were still in the wash machine. And then I got, oh, this weird, I wonder. And I just said to the guy, I said, if you need to take me home now, I'm going to wreck it. I said, I'm going to speak to you anyway. Yeah. All right? He goes, what? I said, you can ask me anything you want. Yeah. I said, but just, I said, no, you're crossing the line now, yeah. you know. Because I'll be honest with you, journalists, we would sometimes get a hint or a feeling if they were looking at someone in particular. And I remember, and it wasn't myself that did the story, but there was a story in the PNJ and I'm sure the others that it, you know, something person, something to do with your business, and it was kind of if you're looking at the family of, you know, a grieving family who've just had their their daughter stepdaughter violently murdered, it's not a story anyone would choose to do. It was something to do with your business, which made me think that there was some sort of nudge, that we should keep an eye on you because it might turn out that it's you. Now that might be a wrong recollection but I remember and they'd got a picture of you from your from your uh, army days as well and that w- was in the paper so it was almost if you read between the lines why why newspapers were doing a story about you did you feel that way there was no there was no rent arrears there was no eviction because the guy that was my business partner at the time when he was away he was moving the stuff there was no eviction, it never happened. That was a difficult conversation for me to have with Paul and the rumours weren't just in the press. Locals too were suspicious of him and sadly it led to an incident where their five-year-old son Darren was actually taunted by an adult when he was on his way to school. Paul obviously did not react well to that and he acted out with his fists and he ended up in the back of a police car being warned. 
And at that point, the press phoned him because they'd already found out he'd assaulted someone. And as I was speaking to him in the back of the police car, the phone goes mm-hmm. and News International. Really? And I said, speak to him. But he says, no story, beat it. So you're in the middle, though, of dealing with the grief of losing, you know, your stepdaughter who you obviously loved and you'd been a big part of her life. You're trying to support your wife and Kevin and Darren. And then you're having to stave off cruel attacks from, from other people to your kids, plus the, you know, the, it, it must have been... A horrific period of your life. Still is, because folk when they speak to you, mm. you know, oh that's him. You you can walk into a shop. Oh that's. Did you think that people thought that you had done it at that time? I knew I didn't do it, but because I, I remember one guy said to me, and he says to me, "I was with the dog," and uh, and he said, "Oh you're all right, you're trading the army." I said, "For what? Getting your daughter murdered?" I said, well, I said, we do that day one, maybe join up. So he was suggesting that you would get away with murder? No, 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 but no, but used to it. Deaths and all Oh, you're you know? used to death because you're in the army. Oh, right, you should be okay with it. I'm okay. My two best mates got blown up and, and I seen them die, you know. And uh, I said, aye, away you go, you know. So uh, at what point did you feel that the police weren't suspicious of you anymore and started treating you more like a grieving family? Susan, yes. To me, no. So Paul's military background may have led to people believing he could be capable of killing someone. But it was also the reason he fell in love. Three decades before he'd been posted to Ballater to be a guard at Balmoral. And as you can imagine, a man in uniform must have been quite appealing for a local mother of two. How did you meet Susan? It was 1989. I was in Royal Guard in Ballater. And believe it or not, it's 30 years ago... A week on Friday. This Friday coming. Wow. So tell me what your duties were as a Royal Guard. I was a Golden Highlander. I stayed extra in Germany and I came back to do the Highland Games because I was a runner and a PTI. And basically we were supposed to guard the Queen. And what was your uniform like? Right. Uh, when we was doing the Royal Guard in the barracks about, we wore full, full number ones, which is Glengarry, number one jacket, white belt, full kilt, spats, brogues, the whole lot. Because I think a lot of people don't expect soldiers to wear a kilt, but that is the, the traditional. That is gear. the traditional now, but they don't do the when they do it now. They just wear combats. Mm-hmm. There are very few ceremonial duties now, you know. So we wear ceremonial. So you were a man in uniform. Is that what first attracted her to you? No, it was because I was as drunk as a skunk. <laughs> <laughs> is that true? You met her in the pub. She worked in the pub, right? And the night we got together, this is. She probably won't want to hear this. Was at her pal's house, and I came at the house because my other pal was going with her pal, and I was going back to the barracks, mm-hmm. and I was to meet her the next night. Mm-hmm. I wrote it actually physically wrote it on my hand, mm-hmm. and the next day, and I'm going to meet Susan ten o'clock. Mm-hmm. I had not got a clue who I was speaking to. to meet Susan at ten o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> so I did meet Susan at ten o'clock, and. There you go. There you go. 30 years on. So basically, you'd met Susan in the pub, you'd written it on your hand because you were a wee bit drunk, and that was to remind you to meet this lovely lady the next day, and I bet you must have been chuffed when you turned up and saw her. Obviously you were, because you got married. (laughs) Yes, we did. It took me all day to figure out who Susan was. (laughs) 
that's that a great story. Two years later, we got married. So that was 1989. So Melanie would have been 11 at that point or 12? 11, 11 or 12. And do you remember the first time that you were introduced to the children? Yes. In fact, I think I was, <laughs> this is going to make me like an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> you needed touch courage. No, I fell asleep drunk in the house. <laughs> oh, no. If I mind right, she was going So it was a morning awakening? No, it was... It sounds like we had a drinking culture now. If it wasn't really, uh, if we were a day off, if we went to the pub. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it was just because like, we were in Ballot. Uh-huh. Nothing else to do. Yeah. Well, we'll go to the pub. Okay. Uh, I'm supposed to go meet her. Okay. <laughs> and then you fall asleep. And, and if I mind right, because Melanie had this weird and wonderful sense of humour, there's a man lying in the <laughs> living room. Susan's going to kill me for that, you know. But, uh, <laughs> I love it. So Melanie went through to her mum and said... There's a drunk. There's a ma- drunk oh, man. <laughs> and that was the first I time I met Melanie. Oh my goodness. So was that... Were you nervous about that or did you have a laugh about it? Oh, I had a laugh about it. I wasn't nervous about it. Okay. Okay. And what about Kevin? Did he react in the same way? No, I was, I was awake by that time. Okay. <laughs> by the time he got home, I was awake. <laughs> He was a bit older, but still, as a teenage boy, I'm sure he'd be quite protective was, of his mother. He was about 13. He's still protective of his mother. Yeah. You know? Has he forgiven you for being drunk on the couch? I think, <laughs> I think he gets... He does laugh. And with uh, hey So, what was it like joining this family? Because the three of them were very close, weren't they? It sounds strange, like, cause, like people say, oh, you married a, a single mother or two. So it didn't late seem like that. It was just like, well, we're here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, it's like stupid things like when I built the driveway, me and Melanie had purple dog boots on a pile of hardcore, and Kevin didn't know what to do. We were putting. She was helping you build help, it. Building a driveway, you know, on top of this big mound of hardcore, and uh, and Kevin didn't know what to do. <laughs> so I like that she would get stuck in. She get stuck in. Yeah. She. She said she had no coordination of brains, but she had common sense. <laughs> Kevin's got no common sense in all the brains. All the brains. So together they were a good team. Mm-hmm. So describe her as the, the 11-year-old that you, you met. What was she like when she was younger? A nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you could have a laugh and a joke with her, and she would get serious. And it'd be serious, you know. She used to like it when me and Susan go out on a Saturday night. And if she was up, she always took money off me. Oh, really? She'd yeah. wait till you come home drunk and then she would get money off She'd know she'd get money off me, you know. And uh, I was like, oh, here, take that and go to your bed, you know. So was it almost like she became the parent? <laughs> and that was she it, yes. She became the adult. She, was the like, oh, yeah. she would tell you off for coming well, in late. Yes, and... uh, both of us. I mean, so time's it. So I bus one, it's early, you know. <laughs> you know, well, where have you been? So that's Melanie's stepfather, Paul. And I want to explain why I've not interviewed her birth father. This is no reflection of his grief or pain, but he wasn't involved in Melanie's life since she was very young. And this is the story of her life and what happened to her. But I do want to acknowledge him. So next up, we return to the scene and lead forensic scientist Chris Gannicliffe. He and I sat down with his extensive forensic file and examined the photographs a little closer. OK, so here... We've got, and this is, you've got quite significant files here. This is, there's a, a lot. Is this, is this typical of a murder or is this more than? It's fairly significant. There's other ones which are 
undetected yeah. and huge. So, so this is the front door, so we've got number three in the flat. Yeah, so mm -hmm. as you open the flat, you've got the settee straight ahead and you've got Melanie's body directly below, uh, just behind the door. Mm -hmm. And we can immediately see there on the left-hand side, uh, there's, there's blood smears. So you've got blood smearing on a cupboard door, which is immediately to the left as you enter into the flat. And some blood spots I was speaking about earlier, these mm -hmm. sort of cast-off blood spots, mm -hmm. flung off a, a weapon, mm -hmm. but, but very low down. So, so flung mm -hmm. upwards, flicked off. So we've got a uh, settee with the throw and the cushions. So you can just see her in the corner there. So you've got the settee. Mm -hmm. You've got the throw and the cushions. The telephone cable is in the corner of the room is pulled out, mm -hmm. which may or may not be related to this, mm -hmm. but again might suggest some, some planning. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's the settee. So it doesn't yeah. look like she's taking up much space actually. No, and, and interestingly, you might look at the sofa and say, well, I thought you said it was heavily bloodstained, and that's because all these items are placed back on top of the bloodstaining. Ah, okay. So there's heavy bloodstaining, which is only apparent once the throw and the scatter cushions are all lifted. So, so someone been, has put those back on. They've been put back as if to cover her. Mm. Just in the same sense that she's covered, so the duvet is over her and there's a blanket thrown over her, mm -hmm. as if she's been covered up as well. Uh, I mean, it's a bit of a mm -hmm. bas basic attempt to clean up because there's so much bloodstaining around, yeah, just to cover up the heavy bloodstaining. Yeah. So you see there's a table upset just behind. Oh, right, yeah. Just behind there, so that's... Turned over. Tra is that her trainers there as well? She yeah, probably took them that's off right. when she came in. Mm. Newspaper on the ground. Okay. So there's the blood staining we were talking about on the settee, okay. which is more significant, but it's covered by the scatter cushions I and see. the fleas. Because this is a it's a light grey fabric, so it's quite obvious. If it was a black one, you wouldn't mm. see it so much. That's right. Okay, yeah. I can see the cushions have been put on that. So something like a black leather settee is very difficult to, to identify the blood yeah. initially and to see it, but here you can visualise okay. it quite quickly. So you have a series of blood drips on the settee mm -hmm. uh, and on the carpet nearby. So what that tells us is that Melanie, having started to bleed, has been upright. Because to form a blood drip, blood's just formed by blood passively falling through the air from a wound falling through the air and striking the ground or, or mm. a surface. So she's clearly bleeding freely mm -hmm. uh, and at least semi-upright. So whether she's kneeling, standing, crouching, mm -hmm. having been on the sofa, she doesn't go straight to the ground. She's upright, whether in some element of a struggle before she's then forced to the ground. But the fact that these blood drips mm -hmm. are here shows us this what is it, what appears to have happened after she's been on the city. Uh, these are just more signs of the activity around the, the back of the door. So we've got blood smearing and hairs adhering to the blood smearing, mm -hmm. some airborne blood spots. And this is the, the, the section of the skirting board where you think her head had been... That's right. ..had struck the... And is this here, could you tell... So this is the smearing in the wall. Does that look like... Or were you able to determine whether that was Melanie trying to, you know, her hand smearing against the wall? No, you can't, and mm. at least some of it is fabric impressions, which you might expect, given you're mm. t talking about two people who are wearing some clothing that's going to be heavily mm. bloodstained. Uh, it might be fingers, it might just be, it looks, given a sort of several elements running parallel mm. to it, it looks like it could be fingers, uh, but no, there's no, there's no more detail, and you okay. don't know whose it might be. And that's the cut I was speaking about earlier. Oh, so, yeah. it's a, so it's a slash to the wallpaper. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, in some properties, you might you might suggest, well, who knows whether that's related. It could be anything. It could yeah. be the last incident that took place here two days ago. In here, 
it looks a little odd, it looks a little out of place. And you're not seeing similar things elsewhere around the room. So the, the fact that it's amongst the bloodstaining would appear to be significant. And she's got a sort of sun, a sun wall, like a fabric wall hanging mm. behind the city. Yeah. And some cards, personal cards, cards and, and photographs. Photographs on the on the cupboard yeah. And is that is that a dressing gown on the chair in the corner? So her clothes that she's probably wearing and changed from are, mm. are scattered around here. And, right. Uh, so she'd probably change their night into her night. Yeah, and the blood stain, but it looks like they just become blood stained in situ. So okay. they haven't been worn and then taken off, mm-hmm. uh, having been become mm-hmm. blood stained. They've just become blood stained, haven't been lying mm-hmm. there. And then this is just heading around the room. So if you stood in the doorway and looked to the right, this is what you would see. So the mm-hmm. television. And this is what amounts to a kitchenette area, uh, as you can see, a bit limited. Uh, so you've got a fridge, microwave, Still, toaster. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So quite, I mean, you can see instantly looking, this is not someone of wealth. This is someone who's... No. So the, uh, the door, there's a keyhole, so it's stuffed with paper. So again, that might be something or nothing. Uh, it's a large mortise lock. So you would think that if you live there and you're sleeping on the city, you'd probably put paper in yourself, I'd imagine, because you wouldn't want somebody looking through. But maybe it's the assailant who's done it, having gained access, because they don't want somebody to look through to see what's going on in there, what's all the noise. So that's something else, but then you need to take possession of that. And Did anything emerge from that, did you? No. no. Okay. But again, it's just another base to cover, but you don't know whether that's the, yeah. the significant thing. Because it would look directly onto the sofa and also mm. would look directly to where mm. her body right. was. And again, just more low-level blood smearing and, and airborne blood spots just low down behind the door. So I think now you can understand why they were at the scene for a week. They had so many different avenues to explore, not knowing what was and wasn't significant. So that's all for this special bonus edition. If you've enjoyed it, please go and subscribe on Spotify, Acast, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you feel so inclined, I would love for you to review it. And until next time, thank you for listening.